You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're turning again this evening to the first letter of the Apostle Peter and chapter 4. You'll find the passage if you're using one of the church Bibles on page 1220. 1,220. For those of you who are visitors uh, this evening, we've been studying in First Peter for some time in the evenings and discovering that essentially uh, there are two themes in First Peter. Uh, the first theme is the sanctification, the obedience of the Christian, and the second is the suffering of the church. And he introduces uh, those themes right at the very beginning in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 12. He has dealt uh, with the theme of the life of the Christian believer, sanctification, obedience in several different spheres. He's turned to uh, the subject that was of deep concern to him, and that is that the Christian's in Turkey, to whom he was writing, were on the verge of suffering. Uh, Peter probably was martyred uh, during the persecution in the days of the emperor Nero. Uh, You remember uh, how Nero uh, caused much damage to Rome, and he used the Christians as a scapegoat. Um, The stories of the martyrdom of many Christians in Nero's time are are both distressing and, and in, in many ways, hugely challenging. And here these Christians are therefore on the verge of suffering, but already suffering. Uh, sanctification and suffering go hand in hand. It isn't possible to be a believer in the world and not attract opposition and suffering of various kinds. And Peter has almost come to the end of this discussion. In some ways, he has already in chapter 4 and verse 12. Uh, Notice in verse 12 that he had uh, pronounced a doxology, which usually happens at the end. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now the verses tonight, it's almost as though uh, he is pausing, looking back, on what he has been teaching before he moves on to some final words of encouragement and exhortation in chapter 5. So, we're reading chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and from verse 12 and on page 1220 of the church Bible. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, 
or as a meddler or busybody. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. For a reason that would be of no interest to you whatsoever, I this afternoon counted up the number of churches to which I belonged during the many decades of my life, and it came to the round number 10. And so, over the years I've been a Christian in these 10 different churches, some of them with multiple ministers, some of them with one minister, some with a succession of ministers, and attending, uh, as has been my lot, hundreds if not thousands of conferences uh, over the period of my Christian life, uh, you would not be surprised to learn, nor would you think I had great discernment in saying, one of the things that strikes you rather forcefully is despite the fact that preachers use the same book, the sermons turn out to be very different, and the preaching turns out to be very different. Even if the only church you had ever attended in your life, not just belonged to, but if you had never gone to another church in your life except here at St. Peter's, but you had been here for a few years, you would probably have heard at least two dozen different preachers and at least seven or eight who are members of the congregation. And the thought might have crossed your mind, why are these guys all so different from each other? You might have struggled, as often I think students struggle. Why is it that I prefer him to him or to him? And wondered, why is that so? when it's fairly clear to me that the guy I put at number three seems to be more godly than the fellow I put at number one. Why do these things happen in the church? Well, they've always been happening in the church. It is, in my view, psychologically impossible that the prophet Isaiah could have preached the sermons of the prophet Ezekiel nor, I think, would Isaiah have been prone to do some of the strange things that Ezekiel did. Whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews had a, a, a different kind of ministry to people from the ministry of the Apostle Paul, or the ministry of the Apostle John, or the ministry of the Apostle Peter. How does this happen? From one point of view, for this simple reason, that preachers, God's instruments of the exposition of His Word, 
use the same book, but through the providences of God in their lives, sometimes in the way they have been brought to faith, first of all, then in the way in which God has matured them, they may, by commitment, preach the same inspired book, but they will do so with differing God-given burdens. And often those burdens are shaped in part by the womb in which they came to new life in Jesus Christ. That's very obvious in the Apostle Paul. It's kind of obvious also in the Apostle Peter. But often, too, by the way in which God's providence has then shaped their experience in bringing them to spiritual maturity. And that is surely true of the Apostle Peter. In a way, the two things with which he struggled in the early days of his faith in Jesus Christ were the issues of being absolutely obedient to him and being willing to suffer with him and for him. And you see that Peter's life, even, even after the day of Pentecost, is still punctuated with this struggle the struggle to yield everything to the Lord Jesus and the willingness to suffer for the sake of that name, the very expression he uses in this passage. And so, in a way, it shouldn't surprise us that he is the one God fits and equips to write this letter to these Christians in Turkey, to other Christians throughout the ages who have read and studied First Peter. Remember, ages ago, Harry Melia told me that this was the favorite New Testament letter of Christians in Iran for fairly obvious reasons. It spoke to them. And perhaps something that makes it especially poignant and relevant and applicatory to us is that it's Simon Peter God chose to write it. Simon Peter who struggled with these things. Simon Peter experienced these things. So that even on the human level, you could never turn around to him and say to him, as we sometimes say to other people, it's all right for you. You don't know what this is like. And so here Peter is opening his heart to these believers. He's been speaking to them about the sufferings that they have gone through and more that they will go through. One of the things we've noticed is that he doesn't write as we would tend to write, I'm really so sorry you're going through all these difficulties. But rather, he lifts up their eyes to the glory and the purposes of God, to the grace of Jesus Christ, and to the purpose God has in the difficulties and trials that Christians experience. And so, in a way, he's, he's, he's bringing all this together in a kind of concluding exposition and exhortation, and he's, he's walking them through a series of stages that will bring them to his conclusion in verse 19, let those who suffer entrust their souls, that is, entrust their lives, to a faithful Creator and go on serving Him in doing good. 
Now, what are these steps in Peter's mind and in these verses that he's walking us through, especially in relationship to pressure and trials and suffering in the Christian life? Well, the first of them is this. It's uh, in verses 12 and 13. Don't be surprised by your suffering, but rejoice in it. Don't be surprised by your suffering, but rejoice in it. And he he says this, of course, because Christians often are surprised. People are often surprised. You know, I don't know why she is going through that. She's such a faithful Christian. Or I don't know why God would allow that kind of thing to happen, because He's promised to bless us. And Peter says, don't ever think that your suffering, your trials in the Christian life are strange. Actually, he uses a a very interesting verb. It's the verb that's used for entertaining strangers. It's, It's as though he's saying, when suffering knocks at your door and you open the door, don't treat that suffering as you would treat a stranger. You know your instinct. You know it's a stranger. You know he's trying to sell you something. Get the door closed. Or if you've ever done door-to-door evangelism and people see that you're there to speak to them about Christ, get the door closed. No, he says when you, when you see that suffering, don't treat that suffering as though it were a stranger, as though something strange and foreign were happening to you. Look at what he says. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, you see, he is, he's really helping us with trials and opposition and suffering here. Because if, if we can begin to think, as Peter has learned to do, if we can begin to think biblically about these trials, we will not be defeated by them. We tend to be defeated by trials when we think that they are strange and foreign and shouldn't be there then those trials will begin to destabilize us in different ways. We may begin to murmur about them. Why is this happening to me? And and not catch sight of the fact that when we murmur against the providences of God in our lives, we, we murmur against God instead of seeking His purpose and glory and will and blessing in the situation into which He has brought us. Or we try to avoid it, complain about it, defend ourselves against it. And yet, in a sense, Peter is saying to us, you know, because this opposition, this suffering, these pains, these trials are not strangers but from wherever they come in human terms, they are messengers to us from the Lord. We are able to say, 
come in, and even if we tremble within, we are able to say, come in and do your work. And one of the reasons for that is it comes, he says, to test you. Now, that's a, you know, if you're, if you're under 23 these days, that's a bad word, isn't it? Test. If you're a teacher, that's probably a bad word. It, it's not quite that ghastly sense of showing you that you're wrong. It's that sense that, that Peter uses on more than one occasion of, 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 of testing you to, to find out what is really there. And this, of course, is a big thing for Peter, that when suffering comes into the Christian's life, what the Lord is doing is He's testing His own workmanship. Anything like me, you know, you, you know, some of you I know just from what I pick up, I do listen to what you are able to do. You know, you are terrific at do-it-yourself. I am at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, my family tries to stop me doing it myself or stop me doing it. And so the one thing I would never do with something I had made would be tested. Why would I not do that? Because I don't have any confidence that it will take the strain of the testing. Why? Because I don't have any confidence in my workmanship, in my skill, that I've done it right. But you see, the Heavenly Father has every confidence in His skill, quite apart from His omniscience and His glorious purpose. It, you know, if, if I don't trust Him to test me, He can say to me, but my, my child, I've been doing this job for centuries. I know exactly what I'm doing. But you see, when we think it's strange, when we, when we when we want to press the door shut. And if in a sense we, we succeed in, in just kind of blocking out of our minds, we are not going to think about that. We are, we are not going to think this through. We're, we're, or, or we're just going to grit our teeth and say, thank God that's over. And in a sense, Peter is saying you'll lose all the blessing because you'll have closed your eyes and you'll have closed your mind to what it is that God may want to do in you through these times of suffering. And he explains what that is. He says, so instead of being surprised, rejoice. Now, you see what's happening here? Now he's not only saying, oh, well, I wish it wasn't happening to me, but I suppose I'll have to accept it. He is saying, now that I begin to understand what it is that God is always doing through these trials and afflictions, I can rejoice in that because I see these trials and this suffering have a purpose in God's economy. Their purpose is to refine me, to polish my graces, and eventually to bring me into His glory. And so he says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Now he's saying, don't you, don't you see that, that God is giving you a privilege here? You are suffering for the name of Jesus. He's saying, look, people so identify you with the Lord Jesus that, 
they oppose you. And you see, he says, now see that, and it, it, sh- it sheds a different light. What, what they are thinking is, I will, I will get her. I will do him in. I will silence their witness. But what you are thinking is, isn't this amazing? For all my sense that I, I don't amount to much as a Christian believer, for all the, for all the ways in which I, I, I feel I stumble when I, I try to bear witness to the Lord Jesus, there's something the Lord has done in my life that makes these people I identify me with the crucified Savior. So, you see, we might say, as all of us might say, but Peter, have you any idea how much this hurts? And he's saying to us, beloved, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I did say you can rejoice in it because God is using it to make your Christian life whole and glorious, and ultimately to fully reflect the glory and grace of the Lord Jesus in your life. So, the first step is this. We, we face opposition. We face suffering. The fiery trial will come upon us to test us. He says, don't, don't be surprised, but understand what the Lord's purposes are, and therefore learn to rejoice in your trials. The second thing he says, I think, is very interesting. Verse 14 and 15. Now he says, not only don't be surprised by your suffering and trials, now he says, don't be the cause of your suffering and trials. Look at how he puts it in verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, just, you know, let these four descriptions kind of run through your mind. You know, here's an an intelligence test. Which is the odd word out? And most of us would say the same word, wouldn't we? We would say, well, murderers, thieves, evildoers, they belong together. As David was saying this morning, they're the really wicked people. But busybodies, meddlers, nosy parkers, well, you know, I'm just really interested in what you're doing. What's he saying here? Well, you know, the Manus had perhaps two, three decades of spiritual pastoral experience. He's he's been around the churches. He knows that among the saints, doesn't he call them the Lord's peculiar people? There are some peculiar people, and and the problem usually is they don't know how peculiar they are. They're difficult people. And you notice this about difficult people? Well, you notice it about other difficult people, don't you? They don't seem to notice how difficult they are. You, you know, have, you know, you're in a group and somebody turns to you and says, have you no idea how difficult you are? No idea how stubborn you are? 
in the office, in the school, the, the, kind, of, the kind of Christian believer who's, 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 always, who's always kind of nosy parkering into what other people are doing and putting them right. Um, the kind of Christian who, who, in a sense, doesn't have, have enough patience with the Lord and therefore becomes irritated with people who aren't Christians. The kind of Christian who's always arguing with non-Christians, who has what nowadays they call a low level of emotional intelligence. And of course, the problem is, you, you know, this is the problem. We may all be like this. Let me assure you, you are not all like this. Most of you maybe. <laughs> We're not all like this, but the problem is if you are like this, you're the last person to notice. And he's, he's bringing it to our attention. And he's saying, you know, if you suffer for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That is to say, you are blessed if it is for the name of Christ you suffer, and not because you've been a really stupid idiot because you've been a nosy parker, a busybody. You've been, you've been meddling in other people's affairs. Actually, the, the language, he uses, <laughs> language he uses here is a, is a construction of like you're, you're overseeing somebody else's business. You're poking your nose in. And uh, he's saying, you know, if, if, if you get in people's faces like that, don't, don't run off to the church and say, you know, oh, I suffer so much where I work and where I live as a Christian, you know, and uh, it, it's your own silly fault. And it's, uh, it's not for the name of Jesus that you're suffering opposition. It's because you've been so unlike Jesus. Now, isn't this strange? You can suffer opposition because you're becoming like Jesus. But don't confuse that kind of opposition with the kind of opposition you may experience because you've not been like Jesus and yet you keep speaking about Jesus. And so he's urging us not to be the cause of our suffering and the opposition, but to reassure us if we if it is for the name of Jesus, despite all our quirks and strange little bits and all our inadequacies and, yes, our ongoing sinfulness, if it is for the name of Jesus that we suffer, we can be reassured that we are blessed. And, of course, he's, this, this, is, this is so interesting, isn't it? I wonder, I wonder if some of them there in these various little churches in Turkey were thinking to themselves, uh, that's plagiarism. He didn't think that one up himself, did he? That's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. And say, well, you know, Peter was like this. Peter was not a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, but he was a meddler. I mean, a sense that his, his greatest moment in the gospel narrative 
when He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what kind of Christ I am, because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. Now listen to the kind of Messiah I am. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die on the cross. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. And Peter physically takes him aside and almost headbutts him and says, that's not my plan. So he was, you know, he was, he, was, he was meddler number one. And God has brought him low. And now he, to these people, he's become, he's become servant number one, pastor number one. Yes, they see the dents and the bruises, but, but God has made something of him, and, and they're able to think, my, this man who was a quintessential meddler, let's do it my way. I'm right. Listen to what I've got to say, even when he speaks to the Savior. At last, it's dawned on him that when he is willing to take the opposition and take the suffering, there is a blessing. There is a, there is a there is a benediction that falls on his life that he could never have tasted so long as he was a meddler. And so you see, he's speaking not only from the truth of the gospel, he's speaking out of his own experience. And he's teaching us something that perhaps some of us need to take to heart, at least for self-examination. Can it be that some of the flack I've got where I live or where I work is because I've not really been sensitive to the fact that God, God seemed to take years to bring me to faith in Christ, and I'm suddenly getting irritated with and argumentative with people who have just heard the gospel from my lips for the first time. I need to, I need to learn divine patience and this is the second lesson that he wants to teach us. And of course, he says, you know, when you experience that blessing, you experience it because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, it must mean what Peter himself had experienced. Do you remember when they were they experienced opposition. The early chapters of Acts, they were put in prison. Then they were released. They were told, never preach again in the name of Jesus. So, the first thing they did was to go and preach in the name of Jesus. But before they did that, they, they counted it an enormous privilege to have suffered for the name of Jesus. And the Spirit of God and of glory rested upon them. In the extreme case of this in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles is Stephen. As he receives the opposition, you sense the spirit of grace and glory rests upon him. The man shines. He becomes bigger. And he looks up into heaven and he, he has this sense, oh, now, now in the light of that glory, this suffering is something that even I can bear. So, don't be surprised by the trials. Don't be the cause of the trials. And then thirdly, he says, don't be ashamed in the trials. 
Yet he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him not be ashamed. And you can sense now, you know, some of them may have thought, you know, some of this teaching must have come out of Peter's experience, but in this section they must be thinking so much of this is a, is a transcript of Peter's own life. What happened, what happened to him when he felt a, a little pressure from the servant girl as he warmed his hands by the fire and as others gathered round and, uh, and the servant girl said, uh, you must be one of his followers. You, you talk that way. And he actually began to curse. I mean, she was really saying to him just, are you, a, are you one of Christ's ones? Are you one of Jesus' ones? And he, he, was, he was so ashamed. I mean, it's not just that he said nothing. He was, he was so ashamed. He was, he was overwhelmed by this, and acted shamefully. So, he, he understands. Um, he, he understands what, it, what it, he must understand what it means to be a young evangelical in the Greek evangelical church and a student and uh, to be kind of pointed out. And, and the whole intention is to, to expose you as, as whatever it is, silly, unintelligent, giving up your mind, not one of the group, not doing the things we do, not running with the crowd, with the set, as Peter has already said. And he's saying that can be overwhelming because the whole purpose is so to make you ashamed that you will come over, cross the line, join us, and then start shaming others who love the name of the Lord Jesus and seek to follow Him. And he's saying, you know, there is something we need to learn that will enable us not to be ashamed. And that is this, not by trying to answer the question, why are these horrible things happening to me? But how can I glorify God through these things that are happening to me. Because you see, the one thing that people who oppose Christians, oppose their testimony to Jesus Christ, do not understand is that in doing so, they become the very potential instruments that God may use to bring a Christian joy and a sense of glory, to enable the Christian to look beyond the pain of the suffering, to the glory that is going to be the fruit of that suffering. Because we find all over the New Testament, don't we, that, that glory is, as it were, the, the raw materials of suffering worked into the life of the Christian by the hands of a heavenly Father to make something beautiful. He uses suffering to make us more like Jesus, because he, he used suffering to make Jesus like Jesus. And when we see that, the whole, the whole thing is, the picture is transformed. Here is somebody who is who's seeking to, to, 
test me, to, to destroy my faith, and they seem so big, they are so sure of themselves, they have the crowd behind them, they have the strong words, and I feel so small. Now he says, you need to turn the picture around, or to put it another way around, you, you need to see who is standing behind that person. The picture that, that David used this morning, God's thoughts, not our thoughts, His ways, not our ways. We see the small picture, but we need to put the small picture into the big picture if we're to understand the small picture. All I see is, is the opposition, the suffering, the affliction, but Peter is saying now, put that into the great big jigsaw puzzle of God's purposes where it belongs and what you will see is that this opposition that you are feeling just now is in the jigsaw puzzle, just a tiny little piece of a bigger picture. And as that bigger picture grows, what is that bigger picture? It's a picture of you being made progressively like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you see what Peter is saying is, the one thing the unbeliever doesn't have in his or her system of thinking is that you might be living for eternal glory. That's something the unbeliever cannot fathom. It's not part of the way they think, and it's the reason they can never get you down, because you are living for eternal glory. You know, these things that the children used to have, you know, like kind of pop-up balloon things, men, you'd bang them and they come up again, bang them, come up again, bang them, they come up again. You could never keep them down. And when the Christian understands that God is using all this to put glory into our lives, to prepare us for eternal glory, then we begin to be able to say with Paul, these light and momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory. And you see, that is one of the things that makes those who oppose your Christian faith and life pause and think. Not all of them, but some of them pause and think. There's something here I'm not understanding because if somebody did this to me, I would lie down and go with the flow. And I can't understand that this person, whom I'm sure is weaker than I am, keeps popping up, popping up, and instead of hating me, loves me, instead of becoming impatient with me, is patient with me. What is it that they see in the picture I can't see? And it's this eternal glory that outweighs the suffering, that outweighs the pain. And the marvelous thing about what Peter is saying in his letter is some of that begins to seep out through our pores here and now, and, and they see it may irritate them even further. But with some, I mean, how irritated Saul of Tarsus must have been with Stephen. He couldn't beat him in argument. He couldn't better him in the power of his preaching. He couldn't silence him. 
And then perhaps in that moment when Stephen looked up into heaven and said he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God, perhaps that was just, maybe that was the thing that began to work its way like a piece of divinely placed dust into the mechanism of Saul's heart so that when God floored him on the road to Damascus and said to him, you know, it's hard this, isn't it? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And this is how the Lord uses it. So, we're not to be surprised by the opposition and the trials. We're not to be the cause of it. We're not to be ashamed of it. And we're not to be overwhelmed by it. And as we've seen, it can be overwhelming. Think of the experience of the psalmist, so often just overwhelmed by what he's going through and by the opposition. And then always the turning point in the psalm is when he begins to see it all in the light of who God is, what God has done, what God's purposes are. And it's the same here. And so he says in verses 17 and onwards, he says, you can take courage from this, for all the wrongs that are done in the world to God's people, the time has come for judgment to begin at the household or house of God. Perhaps he's thinking about that vision Ezekiel has when the, when the glory cloud of divine judgment arises and begins its work in the temple and then moves out in judgment on the land. And he's saying, yes, you know, there, there is suffering now for the believer, but that's refining suffering. But the unbeliever is nothing to refine. And so the judgment of God comes simply as awful condemnation. And if this cloud of God's divine glory judgment begins with us to refine us, what's going to be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? You know, if, it, if in a sense there is so much tough work to be done for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then his little conclusion so, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. Don't you think that the Creator of the cosmos and, and everything in it, and the more, you, the more you think about it, the more you examine it, you think how marvelous God's mind is, how amazing His knowledge is, how intricate His working is, what things He has wrought simply by speaking what beauty He has created. Can I not trust Him? The one who keeps the stars, the planets, the black holes of the universe, the little invisible creatures, the, the, the fish and the monsters of the sea, the amazing, extraordinary composition of one human being if, if he can do all that, can you not trust him? And so he says, trust your soul to a faithful creator and go on doing good. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism that's so often used in the Dutch churches especially, 
Uh, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, most people, if they know anything about it, know only the first question and answer. You know, what happens after glorifying God and enjoying Him forever? It's got a bit of a blank slate to most people. Uh, But you know the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, don't you, about your chief comfort in life and in death? Um, Do you know, I've known that question and answer a long time, but the first person I ever heard quote it, the first preacher I ever heard quote it, uh, was not a Dutchman, but a an Englishman um, who was one of my ministers. He's, he's sitting behind most of you today, David Ellis, who served the Lord in Indonesia, influenced by the Dutch church, and probably knows this off by heart as I don't. What is your only comfort in life and death that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He who preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I had to look it up in Amazon, but David Ellis has a book that uh, if you haven't read it, you should read. You can at the moment buy it on Amazon from everything for one, from one penny secondhand plus £2.80 postage to I think about £20. Do you know what it's called? Nothing Left to Fear. That's it, isn't it? When we see that everything we might fear is in the hands of our Heavenly Father, we know we have nothing left to fear, and therefore we can give ourselves, body and soul, to our faithful Creator, who has become our faithful Savior, and learn, you know, no matter how much we, have, we may have messed up, and learn from the great messer up, Simon Peter, that he can be trusted, whatever the pressure. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvelous ways in which you speak to us through your word, and thank you too for the way in which you shape those who wrote the scriptures in their experience, showing us so evidently that you even take up into your purposes their failures and their faults and their quirks and even the disasters of their spiritual life, and you employ them, you, you remake them into something that can be used for your glory in the lives of others. And we pray, each of us, that you would help us. Help us to be strong in the strength that the Lord supplies whatever evil we encounter, to know that so long as you are with us and working, we need fear no evil, and that so long as you are at our right hand, we will enjoy, not only in the future, but even beginning now, pleasures that last forevermore.
And so we thank you for your word and pray that it may find a lodging place in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.